we have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order. It appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. The Oswald has been shot. Paddock fired out of two adjoining rooms using a device similar to a hammer to smash the windows. Several uh, flying saucers there of extraterrestrial origin. Digging Chris Graves. Hi, welcome back to Digging Chris Graves. My special guest tonight is author researcher Oscar Zimmerman and my good friend Harps, who got me in touch with Mr. Zimmerman. And we are going to talk about something very important uh, to me and should be to a lot of people. And I think a lot of, especially in America, a lot of people are not too familiar with this case, but it's from 1996 and it is the Port Arthur Massacre, uh, which actually predates the Columbine Massacre by three years and shares a lot of parallels. But anyway, uh, welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. Good day. Okay. <laughs> so you wrote a book, Mr. Zimmerman. Um, can I call you Oscar? Mm, call me Oscar. Mr. Zimmerman's my father. Okay. Good point. Okay. Um, you wrote a book, the Thank second, yes, the, the second empty chair, and Harps is uh, holding that up at the Port Arthur uh, paradox, and then you have a revised edition too called Burning Water. Is that right? Yes, that's right. It is more than twice as thick because it covers events prior to and subsequent to the the, the actual day. The um, the second empty chair pretty much finishes at dusk on the uh, on the second day. But uh, there's a huge amount of information which is very relevant to our case, which happened subsequently. When Martin was in prison, the whole court, the trial fiasco, the media circus, and, of course, the treachery regarding the government uh, manipulation that happened behind the scenes in order to force um, gun con confiscation, registration, and the subsequent tightening of the screws. This is what people need to understand just from the Australian experience, that it never stops with one thing, okay? Oh, semi-automatic rifles, pump-action shotguns. The amount of legislation that is restricting law-abiding shooters in Australia never stops increasing. They always tighten the screws. There's small um, restrictions and bans going on constantly. And then there's also overlays of licensing obligations. There's delays with renewals. There's uh, never enough resources for the bureaucracy that administers the licensing regime. So everything is done. This is what we call full spectrum warfare or broad spectrum warfare. If, if you were a uh, in a brainstorming group, like in a corporate office, and you had a big whiteboard and you said, how can we achieve to drive as many people out of this industry as we possibly can? You've got licensing make that as hard as possible make it impossible for kids to get in make it impossible for people to share yeah no that make uh, it impossible for people to drive anywhere etc cetera, etc cetera. 
Yeah, no, that you you cut out for uh, about five seconds there. I just want to make sure that we didn't miss something okay. important. I've still got you. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay. All right. Okay, so <laughs> all right, there's a little bit of a delay, so I'll, I'll try to work with that. What brought your attention to? Uh, well, first of all, just for those that are not familiar, you could probably explain it a little bit. You could explain it much more clearer than I could. What basically is the outline of the Port Arthur massacre? And is today, in fact, at least in the United States, is today the anniversary of that, by the way? Yesterday, the 28th of April, 1996. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So the official story is that Martin Bryant is a uh, mentally disabled young man. And one day he just decided that life wasn't worth living anymore. He was uh, feeling resentful and persecuted at society that was laughing at him for his disabilities. And so he drove to Port Arthur and shot up the cafe. And then he drove about three kilometres, about a mile and a half up the road to a guest house uh, a holiday house where he was then surrounded by the police for the night and in the morning the place caught fire and he crawled out badly burned it was arrested uh, once his wounds had healed he confessed to the murder and was given to uh, 25 uh, life sentences uh, and is now still in prison in in australia so that's the official story it's nice yeah. and neat and people can easily understand, okay, mentally ill man had access to these particular types of um, weapons and did this horrible thing, and thank goodness he's now in, in prison. If you don't want to dig into the surf below the surface, it's a nice, easy thing for most people to swallow. Yeah. You know, guns bad, we're glad we got rid of them, and now we can focus on watching TV and eating junk food. Right, exactly. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect, yeah. yes. When did you Which, start? No, Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, just if I can add, which, which is exactly what they want. You, anybody who's read um, Ted Kaczynski or any of the, the, the current thinkers knows that the system that we operate within, this this capitalist, creditist, industrial, post-industrial system, needs docile, compliant workers who are just smart enough to operate the machinery and not smart enough to figure out how to get out of the chains that surround us. That's uh, George Carlin, 101. That's right. My, yep. One of my heroes. Yeah. It's a big club and you ain't in it. <laughs> you ain't in it. Yeah. Yeah. What brought, what got your attention at for, was it right off the bat? Some of these anomalies that started to come out? No, I I'd, uh, just finished high school and when it happened and I only knew the media story. That's all we got was what was in the newspaper and the, the TV. And I wasn't a shooter at the time. I was just living in, in the suburbs, working in the city, all the usual distractions. Uh, it wasn't until the internet and Facebook came around that I um, had, through my life experience, was interested in the rights of victims and self-defence, uh, particularly with rising crime and Facebook groups sharing things. This, The questions about this Port Arthur issue came up and there was so much misinformation and so much opinion that couldn't be sifted from fact and a lot of innuendo, a lot of people saying he did it and that's the end of it. A lot of people saying, well, what about these other questions? And so it, I was given access to some of the original materials, okay, the, the brief from the court case and books that had been written by other people, one of whom was a police investigator um, yep. called McGregor. 
And there's another one which is quite good called A Gunsmith's Guide to Port Arthur, which you can get on PDF. It's on the internet and it's written by a gunsmith and he looks at the forensic evidence and draws a lot of conclusions. So I decided that we needed a simple narrative that would counter the official one. So using the enemy's weapons against him, we need to create something that's not a dry encyclopedia of to tediously work through different calibers and different angles of shots and timelines and things, but to put it into a sweeping narrative like a Tom Clancy thriller that you can just sit down or Harry Potter that you can just read through and you get a story I say from the very start, it's not accurate. I don't know. You know, there's obviously things missing, but this is there is historical license. There's fiction in there, but it's as good as we can gather from what we know. We will probably never know the truth. It's like the JFK assassination, but you can still write a ripping historical thriller about the JFK assassination. And, and you know, you could say it was Marilyn Monroe who organised with the head of the CIA to <laughs> bump him off because she didn't like him. Who knows? But from what I've, from it sounds what we like can... he, it sounds like he went down the same road that Oliver Stone did because he had to take some liberties and combine uh, certain real characters into one character here and there. Sounds like a similar yeah. situation. There's uh, Australia has its own Oliver Stone. His name's Paul Moda, and he is an actor and director. And he is he's currently written a screenplay and he has completed a trailer for a movie called Wasp W A S P, the Port Arthur massacre, and it's essentially. It's very similar to my story where he in film goes through what happened and demonstrates that it's so easy to appreciate if there was two people with a, one of them with a wig on, you would not be able to tell the difference in the chaos of an actual event like that. So all the witness statements who say they saw him, yes, I'm sure they believe they saw him, but their memory has been doctored by seeing the photo in the newspaper, seeing the photo on TV, um, some of the witnesses even described the gunman as wearing a blue long sleeve shirt when in fact he was wearing a green overcoat because their, their memory has taken the photo from the newspaper where he's wearing a blue long sleeve shirt. And so while uh, I've on my Facebook page, I've posted up several um, articles about how unreliable eyewitness testimony is and how unreliable our own memory is. Uh, we all know about MK Ultra the brain can be manipulated, memories can be rewritten, and um, there's a big chunk of um, uh, who's the, who's the the American CNN. CNN's the American news um, uh, organization. Yeah, the news network. Yep. Yeah. They were given the the people from CNN were surprised at how much access they were given to Port Arthur at the time. Now, looking back in hindsight, we can see that the people who were running it needed that media um, outlet to pump the propaganda. But at the time, coming off the back of the Vietnam War, uh, the media were not used to having such great cooperation with government and the police and things. And so it was surprising to the journalists and the producers who came out here that they got so much access and so much material and now we know why, because drip feeding the, the trauma into the public consciousness is a great way of controlling the narrative and controlling people's emotions. And they've been doing yeah, that so, with 9-11 and Columbine, like I had mentioned before. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Yep. We've we've got a newscaster here called uh, Lisa Wilkinson, and any time there's any shooting that happens in America, she puts on her concerned face and and she says, "Oh, thank goodness for John Howard and his brave gun laws. We haven't had a mass shooting ever since 1996." It's just an outright lie, but. It's the drip feeding, and it's just dripping it out there constantly into the public consciousness that we're all so much safer now. We've had the same number in Australia; has had the same number of mass shootings since 1996 as we did before. It's not a great deal. We're a completely different country, different culture, different society to America. Uh, America is a different planet, as far as we're concerned. And yet, because there's an agenda here, they just keep keep dripping that uh, subliminal programming out into the population. And while times are good, it works. It's when times get tough that we're going to see the cracks start opening up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sounds just like uh, our Anderson Cooper at CNN with Sandy Hook. Sounds like the same type of talking points. Sorry, yeah. yeah. One thing that I always point out to my American friends is they say, oh, but there's never been any school shootings after 1996. Well, there was barely few before 1996. And there's been at least three afterwards at universities. That yep. that yep, Monash was the big one. Yep, that they were never heard of pretty much before 1996, or you know, there was mm. it was a phenomenon that it would become. Yeah, yeah. Australia had a bunch of massacres um, pre-1900, of course, as the country was being settled and the government and yep. the police uh, massacred a whole bunch of natives, just like the Trail of Tears and the reservation pr program in America. And then it all stopped. It all went away. Um, the semi-automatic rifles were invented. They were very popular in Australia because we had to have rabbit hunting. A lot of people were poor farmers. They needed to, uh, you know, kids would come home from school, be handed a 22 rifle and be sent out to bring home dinner. That was just the reality for so many people in Australia. And right up until the 1980s, uh, until the UN disarmament program really started to kick in, uh, Australia is a signatory to the UN Lima Agreement, 1974. And that is, was the start of this whole tightening up of globalisation, of impoverishing the wealthy countries, exporting industry to the third world countries, and civilian disarmament was right up there on the list. And so uh, we the, the first one we had was called the Strathfield Massacre, and it was simply a bunch of bikies. Two bikie gangs were at war, and there was a miscommunication between them, and they both turned up to the same event at the same time. And, hey, we recognise you, we hate you, let's start shooting at each other. They, they were just It was just like the current lot of gun crime in America is drug gangs shooting at each other over turf. This was exactly that. It was just a turf war um, and treated the same way at, at the time, but it set the scene for subsequent ones. The next one was called the Hoddle Street Massacre in Melbourne, where a guy uh, shot a bunch of people and then conveniently threw himself out the window of an upper level of the police station so he couldn't be further interviewed. Hate when uh, that happens, you know? Mm, yeah, it's really unfortunate. But he had said at the time he was uh, he was using an M1, um, M1 uh, carbine rifle and it had been cut down to fit in his bag. And so the barrel had been sawn off beyond the gas piston. Wow. turning it into a single-shot manual rifle. And he made the comment to the police, how do they expect me to kill anyone with this piece of crap? Yeah. 
before he was ejected out the window. So he had help, of obviously had help, by someone who knew nothing about how a semi-automatic rifle works or they never would have cut it down to fit in the bag. They would have got a bigger bag. Right. Now, that's pertinent to my book because in my book, the, the evil character Rebecca Peters has learned from that and she and with the help of the mercenary they're using they say we need to get a bigger bag because the shooter at Port Arthur had two bags and <laughs> I believe that that's a factor of one of them the the FN foul in 308 is a yep. long battle rifle and the bag that she had produced the blue prince tennis bag was not long enough to have it and she suggests cutting the barrel off and the guy who's a military veteran says no 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 you can't do that right so, I factor that in. So these these people have learned from previous events, and and Port Arthur was reasonably well put together from a military planning point of view. Now I'm not a chess grandmaster or anything, but looking at the evidence, looking at what happened, um, there was a reasonable amount of planning of uh, decoying the police away at the right time. Yeah. And I'm not going to lie. If Martin Bryant had died in the fire as was intended, we wouldn't be having this conversation. It would yeah. be done and dusted. He did it. We don't know why, but thank goodness he's gone. Um, and the only the only fact is that he survived and had a trial that the evidence was gathered. And the people who were gathering the evidence, the forensic police, the lawyers putting the brief together, were not part of the inner circle. So they were just doing their jobs. They yeah. didn't know the full story. And they weren't able to analyse how their evidence related to the big picture until late. it was too late. And it's now out in the public domain. So what we've got is certainly not all of it. There's uh, all of the Tasmanian police information has been scanned and digitised. The physical evidence has been destroyed. And wow. the, the electronic evidence is subject to what's called a D-notice, a restriction of eyes only for the police commissioner himself. Not even the premier of the state or the, the country's leaders can look at that, only the police commissioner himself for another 75 years. So 100 years will have passed before any of the official government information is released. Harps. Yeah. Uh, Oscar, did, uh, did the trial actually proceed or did he plead not guilty? Okay, yeah, there's a timeline here. Um, Martin pl pleaded not guilty to the initial um, uh, charges in the police station and in the prison. Yep. So he, he, he denied it. He said, I wasn't there. I didn't have the money to pay the entry fee to get into the cafe. So I couldn't. I, I drove past. He says he, he yep. was in the area, but he drove past and went beside it. Uh, he then spent six months in solitary confinement while his burns healed. Yep. And the prosecution was changed. So um, D David Gunston, who was his defence lawyer, um, was pressured to leave and John Avery came in as his defence lawyer and basically tricked him into changing his plea to guilty. He brought his mother in to the, to the prison for a visit and she said, Martin, basically, you're going to stay here for the rest of your life, but if you, either way, but if you plead guilty, if you change your plea, I'll come and visit you. If you continue to maintain this facade, I won't come and visit you anymore. Uh, they used their, his mother against yep. him. Correct. Yep. So what happened was there was still a trial. In legal terms, it's still a trial. However, yep. by pleading guilty, he had the trial beta version, not the trial alpha version. So the trial that he had, he was not allowed to say anything. 
it was just the prosecution got up and told a story to the judge and said he's pled guilty. This is what we think he did. And you can actually read it. You can obtain the um, the, prosec the transcript of the court case and you, you just do a search. Oh, we that, lost you. Like that we little phrase, the court cases. That, or, or, okay, we have hello. you back. We have you back. You, yeah, you were so about to tell us read how to get the transcript. Yeah, okay. You can search for this phrase, the Crown case is that, or the Crown alleges that, uh, or, or, or things of that nature. They're not saying facts. They're saying yeah. it's our opinion that he did this, and yet the crowd takes that as being fact, when in fact they're just making things up and pinning it on him. And legally he's not allowed to say anything because he's already pled guilty. Right. So the judge then bangs his gavel and says, 28 life sentences, no opportunity of parole. May God have mercy on you. Uh, was it a star chamber or was it a um, tier three court? Yeah, we, uh, we lost you again, Oscar. Yeah. Yeah, because under the Bill of Rights, it's everything that happened with that is yeah and the bill of rights actually works in australia yeah, i think that's come back okay yep. yeah you yeah we lost uh, you for a minute yeah yep. so harps you want to ask that again uh so was it a star chamber or was it a property three court chapter three i don't i don't know the difference between those two but i believe it was just an ordinary court it was the the, the local hobart yeah. a court. star chamber um which are outlawed under the Bill of Rights in Australia, 1688, which it, the High Court has oh. said is stands in Australia. The Bill of Rights, 1688, stands in Australia. All right. So, I, I don't know a lot about that side of things, but under yeah. the rules that we're playing under, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, whatever they we're may not, be, uh, the, yeah, they're, yeah they're we're rules. under prison rules. But, yes, yes. Under, under the prison rules that everybody accepts as being our reality yeah that's yep. that's what he had so people who say there was no trial they're kind of technically was correct there was no cross-examination of the evidence right. yep. and i'm actually currently writing a play called the retrial of martin bryant where we're in we can present the the um, opposing evidence or the exculpatory evidence in the form of the witness statements and have the jury the the um the audience act as the jury to say would you convict this man based on this wow. reasonable doubt so that's a, a good idea so an act in in five parts and and you you could you know people i'll if you wanted to film it it would then be a nice visual counterpart to uh, oliver stone's documentary about or, or film about jfk yeah. say you know lee, let me let me ask you a question if you put lee harvey Oswald, if he hadn't been shot if lee harvey Oswald went on trial yeah. would he have been convicted um well in America, our, in America, our uh, court system is so corrupt that I think uh, he probably would have been. But if it, if it was a legitimate uh, court, they would have dismissed it just on the chain of custody of the rifle and the fact that originally it was a German Mauser and not a Carcano. Mm -hmm. So, yep, so that, there you have it. So th that's why it was so important for Martin not to have that cross-examination, and they had to go to extreme lengths to make sure he pled guilty, to make sure it went away, because once they got the forensics back and yeah. they realised that he th th this doesn't add up, um, one of the things that I've just said is, um, if you for, for your audience, I would encourage you to go on Google Maps, Google Earth, 
and go to Tasmania and have a look at the locations. If you're interested in this case, um, have a look at the, the journey from Hobart around to Dunalley and down to Port Arthur and out to Roaring Beach because uh, Martin Bryant in the transcript clearly um, remembers his journey. And he came down to the peninsula, he bought petrol at uh, a particular spot and then he made a right-hand turn and he drove all the way up to the coast and went for a swim. And he clearly remembers it because he didn't have a wetsuit. And so he went skinny dipping. He was nude in the ocean, got back in his car, dried, dried himself off, and then he drove south to a place called Nubina and got a coffee and a toasted sandwich. And then he continued around the peninsula, drove past Port Arthur, and he remembered that he used to be able to get in there for free. Yeah. And he had good times in that cafe and the gift shop and looking around at things. But once the state government purchased the tourist site, they put an entry fee on there. Now, it was the end of the month, 28th of April, and because Martin's finances were managed by the public trustee, he could only get a certain amount of cash every month for his living expenses to prevent him from blowing his fortune because he, he, he was worth more than $2 million and he had an income of about $100,000 a year from those investments and wow. and shares. I'm not sure if you're aware, but Martin Bryant was a, one of the six beneficiaries of the Tats Lotto fortune in Australia. Yeah, that's right. So Martin's, Martin's friend uh, who, who left him her estate, she was the granddaughter of the lottery manager and very wealthy, very wealthy woman. And so he had all of this money. Uh, nobody knows where it went. In the, the, in the revised version, I pieced together a line of reasoning that says the family took it back. The family got the shares back from his estate by the corrupt public trustee assigning them back to them in the confusion of it all happening uh, because the government wanted to deny him the money, the, the ability to pay a good lawyer to get him off. So yeah. his, his fortune was confiscated very early on and nobody knows what happened to it. Um, and it was worth quite a lot of money. So, But he, he had a lot in the bank, but he was only able to get out a small amount of cash every month for his living expenses. Right. He burned through all the paper money and he paid for the petrol at, at Tarana with the last $15 of cash money, a 10 and a box to buy the coffee and the toasted sandwich at Nubina. And he was going to go home and... Sunday was over, Monday morning, go back into the trustee's office to get another couple hundred dollars for the next month's um, expenses. He never made that appointment because he was in prison. The rest is history. Right. So he physically couldn't go. He couldn't pay the money to get into the, um, the, the site. So for all, I've got a stack here of, of witness statements uh, corroborating all of that. You know, that's public record. The people giving these witness statements have no incentive to lie. Right. They're just telling what happened. Well, Oscar, so, Oscar, in your opinion, was this like a, a another a new phase of Operation Gladio, including later with Columbine and the other the other shootings after the fact? I would agree that they are related. I'm not okay. sure if they're all done by the same people. Seems like but the, same the same tactics. Same tactics. Um, and there's a, there's a, quite a few people involved. Um, not all of whom know the full picture. So, for instance, I have a, a memo here from the Port Arthur Historic Site um, Management to their employees, and it's dated the 18th of April, 1996, so two weeks before. And it says there's an off-site workshop 
will be held on Sunday the 28th of April and Monday the 29th of April 1996 at Meredith House, Swansea, for the above staff members, the 10 top managers at the site. Three work vehicles will leave the site at 11am, so please arrange to be either at Port Arthur or for one of the vehicles to pick you up along the way. What to bring? Yourself and an overnight bag, and please wear casual clothes, uniforms are not necessary, walking shoes and a coat just in case we decide to brave the elements. The workshop will be interesting, enlightening and surprising. For any further information, give me a call. Margaret Jacobs, Training Coordinator. You can absolutely guarantee that workshop was interesting, enlightening and surprising because an hour after they turned up, they realised that all hell had broken loose. So why were those 10 people taken? These are public servants. Now, you imagine your own local government running a tourist shop. Why would they not hold a staff workshop on a Thursday, Friday, so that they can have a long weekend? Now, taxpayers paying for this. Okay, what public servants would go on a Sunday to a training sem- seminar. Okay. There may be a there may be a reasonable explanation for this, okay? But it's out there on the spectrum. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if you know much about my, my background. I have a degree in political science and part of that is statistical analysis and data analysis. So yeah. I'm very reluctant to say something is impossible or something absolutely happened. There's a spectrum of probable plausible unlikely you're you're showing it it was a fact you're not saying one way or the other this this document this document exists the workshop happened but why it happened there may be a reasonable explanation there may not we'll never know because i've tried to find margaret jacobs and i can't find her anywhere right i just i'd just like to point out for me and for our american friends that in australia you normally get two times the pay or three times the pay on the Sunday or a public holiday. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So your time, so two and a half times your wage is normally paid on a Sunday hmm. if you work so on a Sunday. Whether that was when it's not the, your yep. yep. Now, please keep in mind that there's that's a financial incentive for the staff to go. Right. However, the Port Arthur Historic Site had a very tight budget. Okay. The lock on the fire escape door in the cafe had been malfunctioning. And yeah, allegedly, they couldn't afford to get a locksmith out there to fix it. So they nailed the door shut a week before the shooting happened, and seven people were trapped behind that door, unable to escape. If that door had been working, they would have gotten away. And it's it, an absolute tragedy. Their families should have sued the living daylights out of the government. In fact, they tried, and it went nowhere. They couldn't find a lawyer willing to take the case. Right. Okay, because you can imagine the head the head partner of every legal firm in Tasmania would have received an anonymous phone call saying, don't touch Port Arthur. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, I'm not a strategic master, but even I would have organized for that to happen. Yeah, exactly. Now, was there, was there a possibility that there were two yellow Volvos in existence around that, that area? Was there evidence for that with the, the eyewitness testimony uh, Mm. from the night before? Um, yeah, there were, there, the eyewitness testimony is from the Port Arthur historic site at the time of the shooting, and there is a second yellow Volvo inside the site after the gunman's Volvo has driven north to the toll booth and been yeah. abandoned at the toll booth. So there were two women in this other yellow Volvo, which was driving around inside the traumatised victims and then later disappeared. It was not found anywhere 
uh, you know, once the police moved in and cordoned off the site, yes, right. it had disappeared. So the, 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 the there is eyewitness evidence that there were two yellow Volvos. Okay. Not, maybe, know, maybe not the exact same make and model, but close enough to be um, confused because um, the yeah. eyewitness account says he thought it was the gunman coming and almost had a heart attack and then realised after you know, a, a second glance, realised that it wasn't. And, and he said to the women driving, you need to get out of here because if the police see you, they might think you're the gunman and shoot you. So that was sort of the, the exchange between the two. Yeah, so, that, yeah. yeah, that's... I've built that into the into the narrative. Whether that was purely an accident or not, I don't know. But there right. were certainly other people involved. Because um, it the reminded me of the of the evidence, that there, and there is some evidence of the second rider truck during Oklahoma City till. That's why it popped out at. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I'll put my hand up and say I don't know a lot about those American things. I know a little bit about Common Bond and little little uh, parallels. I'm noticing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, I'm quite sure that um, whatever industry body you're in, you go to conferences and you know people in the industry and you share ideas. I'm sure the same thing happens with the UN disarmament people. Uh, you know, IANSA is a thing. It's a body at the UN and I'm sure they do training seminars and debriefings and things and, and try and figure out how to better pursue their line of work just like we do. Well, I'll just mention this, uh, Oscar. I can't I can't prove it to you, kind of like a lot of the, these things we can't really prove, but... At a certain point, I had seen photographs taking, taken from a video that was outside of the Columbine massacre at the, at the start of it. And clearly it was what appeared to be a NATO van or truck with mm -hmm. uh, the NATO insignia on the front uh, of the thing. And then that footage disappeared. Right. Um, so that's a blue flag with like a compass, a full north, yes. south, east, west, white design. Star yeah, that's the, the UN. Uh, sorry, NATO uh, design. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that uh, was seen on TV by a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. And then that truck disappeared shortly thereafter. That footage kind of disappeared, except for a couple of stills that existed on the internet in the mid 2000s. That's what mm -hmm. I saw. Um, mm -hmm. Does that surprise you at all? Like if that is the case and that footage wasn't doctored and people saw what they, they think they saw, the fact that NATO would be at the site of a school shooting in America where NATO is not supposed to step foot, uh, first of all, in the United States. Mm. When you brought up the UN, that's why I'm bringing this mm -hmm. up right now. Because, yeah, sure. yeah, it, it kind of, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this, to be honest with you, Oscar. No, but I, I, if I can, if I can supplement that. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just zooming back for the, the high altitude view, right? World War Two finished. And we lost you, Oscar. Sorry. Um, are you there? Have you lost? Have you lost me? Okay, you're yes. back. Yeah, yeah you're uh, back. If you could just start. Okay, what, so start World War Two ends. Yep. Yeah, World War Two finishes. The communists have been fighting for a global communist revolution for years. Okay, for twenty years, the communists have been in Russia trying to get Germany and France to have a communist revolution, and it's failed both times. So the end of World War II, all the victorious nations sit around and they think, thank goodness that's over. We need a United Nations body so that this sort of thing never happens again. Joseph Stalin says, that's a brilliant idea. You want to set up the United Nations. I will donate 10,000 trained bureaucrats to staff it so you won't need to fund it as much with your own people. So 
thousands of trained bureaucratic communists immediately arrive in wherever the UN headquarters is and they start working on the United Nations global plan. But what people don't realize is, is that these guys at their heart are trained communists. So that communist global takeover infects the entire bureaucracy of the UN. So if you imagine a corridor, like a hallway at work, and there's 26 doors that open off the left and the right hand sides of that hallway, Okay, like a hotel, you're walking down a hotel corridor and on the left hand side, there's Australia and there's Argentina and Austria and Belgium and Brazil and ABCD. All the countries of the world have a door with a room and inside that room is a team of people analysing that country's government, society, industry, media, education systems and designing a plan on how to foment a 50 year communist takeover in that country. And... They start off with Africa and they start by getting all the countries that were part of the British Empire and having them agitate for independence. Ghana, Uganda, um, uh, Mozambique had already, um, Mozambique had had a revolution from um, whoever there, um, it was a Portugal. Yeah, I think I... it was Portuguese. Was Mozambique a Portuguese colony? Anyway, whoever. Uh, yeah. So they started, and then you've got Angola. You've got uh, all of these countries falling to um, communist takeovers, and it's always the same thing. The first step is to put out a cry for democracy and freedom. One man, one vote. And as soon as their party wins, it changes, and it becomes one man, one vote, one party. And that is the story of every country in Africa, Rhodesia. except. For except for Rhodesia. So they had to invade Rhodesia and yeah. they, they yeah. did that and they started a war and it's taken a little bit longer with South Africa, but now South Africa is since 1995, the ANC is a communist party. So Africa is basically fully communist. The same thing happened in South America with slightly less effect because the CIA saw this happening and realized, hey, we've got to stop this. So there's a bunch of conflicts in Central America, South America, where the CIA was battling communist insurgencies and communist governments. And all of this is happening under the auspices of this UN global program, global world food program, child protection program, yes. disarmament, um, exchange of technology, getting West wealthy countries to eliminate their motor vehicle manufacturing and outsource it to Taiwan, outsource it to Cambodia, so that those countries... That also comes under the... Quickly, whereas we had to take 100 years to develop to develop this. China has skipped the... China skipped 50 years from 1920 to 1970. We just imported it all straight into China and said, here it is, go for it. Right. So that was the plan... Um, for these poor countries who obviously lobbied the government, hey, we want to lobby the UN, we want a better deal, not realising that the communists inside the UN said, yeah, sure, we'll help you get a better deal. All you've got to do is this. Right. So or there's enough slush fund inside the UN, there's enough black money, there's enough deniable operations that all of this stuff can happen with not a lot of funding. You, know, you don't need a huge amount of funding, um, certainly compared to you know, running a food program in a third world country um, yeah. to have this sort of thing happening. And all you've got to do is hire a few ex-military personnel and yeah. <laughs> there's plenty of them around. So, yeah. um, Well, that, that when, makes sense because uh, someone that I, I'm actually friends with, a Columbine survivor uh, named, right. named Jen, and she saw an adult shooter that looked like he was in the military. 
He looked mm-hmm. like he was in his thirties too. Mm-hmm. And he yep. was seen not only by her, but by uh, quite a few other people trying to calm Klebold down at a certain point, almost like a oh, handler wow. type role. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Um, so that, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Yep. Now, could, yeah, yeah. This, all this was, that's what the Lima agreement was about, moving all manufacturing to the third world countries, taking it from our countries and all that. Yeah. Our communist government, Labor back in 74 or 75, signed up to it. Hmm. Every country pretty much agreed to it. All the, the Western countries agreed to it, and that's why we are where we are. Yeah, look at America too. Like yep. everything shipped overseas. So yep. uh, yeah, so I'm on board with everything you're saying there in the U. Mm. The UN. But I, what yeah, I, there's a couple of things yes, that yeah. I just wanted to raise. For instance, um, people say that the the correct guy is in prison, and that uh, Martin didn't have any help. And the the issue with that is is that his girlfriend Petra Wilmot, which uh, I and not only I believe was his handler, his local handler, uh, Petra Wilmot was a young woman who was the girlfriend of Martin Bryant. And she said she was with him from the 25th of April until the Sunday morning of the 28th of April. So in Australia, 25th of April is Anzac Day. That's our national holiday. And so they went together to the Anzac Day service. And then she stayed with him for four days. And then she left on the Sunday morning about 7 a.m. and didn't know what he was doing after that, the, the shooting happened. The problem is, is that just before one o'clock, the local police station down at down near Port Arthur received a phone call from an anonymous caller saying there's a heroin drug stash at a yes. place called Saltwater River, which is 45 minutes out in the bush in the wrong direction. And there's no radio coverage. Mobile phones didn't exist back then. So the only two police in the area got in a car and drove all the way up there. And according to their report they found a glass jar filled with soap powder yes i was going to ask you about that and there was no no drugs whatsoever a huge on the appearance the appearance of a diversion that makes sure that Mm, no actual right and it's very strange because lots of people in tasmania take drugs but it's marijuana they grow their own marijuana and use it themselves heroin is a very urban a very city drug because it's so expensive so the question is what is a a dump of marrow of heroin doing out of context okay this is sounds like something some a european would do to decoy away the police without knowing the local circumstances okay it stands out because it's an anomaly the locals are all exclusively pretty much using marijuana what's heroin doing here it's a there's a, a statistical anomaly there that needs to be examined while the police were out there, the gunman shoots up the uh, the, um, the, the cafe. Yeah, yeah. So the question is, who planted it? That's it like couldn't the have diver- been a diversion, diversionary bomb that yeah. was uh, right before Columbine. It Someone blew could not have been planted more than a couple of days before because it's a tourist site, and somebody might have discovered it and disposed of it or taken it. So it had to be less than, say, three days, less than thirty-six hours before the shooting happened. Okay, so somebody put that there. The problem is, at that time, Petra Wilmot says she was with Martin until the Sunday morning, where he did not have time to get all the way out there to plant it in the morning. So somebody did that. If it was Martin who was the villain in this whole thing, then she was with him, or she lied about being with him, 
and she's an accomplice to murder and got away with it. Yep. Now, Oscar, can you tell us about the, the other strange uh, On vehicle? On his behalf. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were done. Like, the signal keeps going in and out. I apologize. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, so either she did it with him or he didn't do it and somebody else did it on his behalf. So you can't have it. That's the only two ways about it. There's no other way. Either he had help and those people got away with murder or he didn't do it. So the, the witness statement that she gives, she has three interviews with the police. And one of them is very strange because the police ask her about a film called The Streets of Laredo. And she just makes the statement, I have seen the video case in Martin's house, like in the library, but I haven't watched it myself. And I looked at it and said, I didn't know anything about Streets of Laredo. What's this all about? So being an investigator, I looked it up. Streets of Laredo is a 1949 Western in the Lonesome Dove uh, area, that sort of, sort of you know, classic yeah. Western romance things. And it's about a mercenary from... It's about a mercenary. We lost you again, Oscar. It's about a mercenary from... from... Uh, to kill a wealthy man. Okay. We just need to uh, repeat. We're just repeat just... for the last... Yeah, last... Uh, well, yeah, because the signal's going back and forth. The Streets of Laredo is about a mercenary. Streets of, yeah, is about a mercenary uh, who travels south to um, to Texas, like to the the Mexican border, in order to kill a wealthy man. Yep. And so the police are asking Petra Woman, "Have you seen Streets of Laredo? Where does this come from? What kind of line of questioning is yeah. is this? What? How does this relate to it? Well, the plot of the Streets of Laredo is about a, a mercenary." who comes and does a shooting in the South, there's a thread here that maybe they've, they're following up a line of inquiry or a, 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 or a, a conspiracy catcher, theory or catcher something. in the rye kind of thing. Correct. So, yeah. So um, the, the, this whole thing about Petra is very strange. And I have, I've tried to track her down. Many people have tried to track her down. Can't find it. She's disappeared with, with good reason. Like you, you know, imagine if you were um, somebody related to, one of these guys, people would be banging on your door all all day and night. Right. So, yeah. uh, so it's very strange that that whole issue. When people say it's an easy case, it's cut and dried. He did it. Well, you can't explain these other these other things. Now, um, what about the vehicle, the um, uh, the mortuary mortuary vehicle mm -hmm. for uh, twenty two bodies? What do we know mm -hmm. about that? It was not a state government thing. It was a federal government thing that was it's actually not a bad idea so it's designed to fit inside a transport aircraft and could be delivered anywhere within australia within 12 hours and had the necessary um, equipment and things to keep um, bodies cool etc and so that was manufactured by a tasmanian company they won the contract and put it together and it was in hobart at the time so it was very useful when this uh, tragedy happened and there is an, in addition to the hospital trainings, the, the hospitals themselves had recently completed a bunch of procedures called Code Brown for mass casualty events. And this had all been recently put in place. The staff had training, and then suddenly there's a massacre that uses this exact training they've just had. You know, there's 
these are cons um, coincidences that add up to a lot of suspicion. Okay. Like all so, of mine. All of my had similar ones too. Yep. I'd just like to ask, could we do a part two of this? Because there's so much more. <laughs> there's so much more into this that I'd, I'd like to get into. I would love to. If Oscar's yeah. up for it, I hope I'm not cutting you off, Oscar. I Definitely, got... no, that's fine. This is oh. I'm happy to have like a casual chat. I'm, I'm, I'm not scripted here, so that's yeah, yeah, that's fine. We'll go for another half an hour or so, but then yeah, I'm, I'm up for, for like I said before. Okay. There's been five. Yeah, we'd much appreciate that, Oscar. Just in one Thank hit. you. So yeah, the after the massacre, when this um, morgue truck had proven its worth, um, it was sold and eventually dismantled. Sorry, it was advertised for sale, but there was no buyers. And so it was uh, basically donated to the army who used it for a bit, and then it was dismantled and it's just disappeared. It's been um, sold off for scrap. So that's the, the question that people ask is, if it was so effective in this one incident, why wasn't it kept around and used for other ones? Just that's six right. months after this incident, there was a collision between two Black Hawk helicopters in the Northern Territory on an SAS training mission, and uh, a dozen of our uh, military personnel were killed and injured in that crash. The truck was not flown there to assist with that uh, tragedy. Uh, it's possible that the military just looked after it themselves because they have their own um, procedures and resources for, you know, um, casualty handling and they didn't make that request of the federal government until it was all over uh, th that's certainly a possibility but there's been other yeah, other things around uh, that have could have benefited yeah. and it simply hasn't been used and it's just been uh, that timing is certainly something that is uh, an another coincidence that all adds up now, was the gun an actual, the, the main gun that was used, wasn't that from the police themselves? It was already like in their custody? Correct. So the, there had been previous um, amnesties in from the 80s and, and early 90s, and a farmer from Victoria had owned this AR-15 SP-1 uh, carbine, and on the top of it was mounted a 4x20 scope for competition long-range shooting. And he didn't need it anymore, and he decided to hand it into the police some years before, like 1991. And it was supposed to be cut up and melted down, and instead the police took it and gave it to their special operations group to use for a while. And then uh, at the same time, the Australian Army was moving from the SLR to the Ostia 5.56 rifle, and... Of course, a lot of the police special operations guys want to be just like their army counterparts, and so the, the, the movement was started to issue the Tasmanian police special operations with army hostiles. So this rifle and a bunch of others was supposed to be disposed of by being melted down, and instead it was consigned to a company called Granite Arms. Granite Arms is an Australian company that imports a lot of military hardware for police and um, uh, police the army special forces night vision radios ammunition explosives you know they've got a government permit to import this and uh, so nobody knows what happened after that it just turned up in a gun shop in tasmania so somebody bought it from this third party this this arms dealer 
and it ended up in Tasmania where Martin Bryant purchased it. He had recently sold a boat. So he bought a 19-foot inflatable, like a, a, a inflatable boat with a big engine on the back. Yeah, a and, Zodiac. And a solid hull. Yeah, Zodiac, big, big Zodiac. And he had taken his girlfriend to a place called Hen Island, which is two hours sailing on the open ocean, the very south of Tasmania. Okay, there's nothing between them and Antarctica. This is wild, open country, the roaring 40s. This is dangerous ocean. And they went out there in an open boat and the sun the, had a bit of a tour around. And then they'd emptied one tank of fuel and he connected the fuel line to the engine to have the return journey back and the engine would not start. So they drifted and eventually the sun went down. They got hypothermia. Their lips went blue. They started chattering and shivering. Martin set off a flare, which all boats in Australia are required to carry, and a fishing boat found them and towed them back to harbour where it was discovered that when he was changing the fuel line, he plugged the fuel line into the tank, the new tank, and hadn't realised that it had popped off the engine at the other end. That's all it took. And he lacked the mechanical knowledge, the basic diagnosis skills to check how do I refuel my, how do I get my boat working? So this is an indication as to his mechanical knowledge. It was less than zero. This guy was a moron when it comes to basic mechanical things. Okay, he had no idea whatsoever. Well, what was his IQ, by the way? 66. Okay. So yeah. basically 12 years old. Yeah. And he sold that boat. The girlfriend left him because he'd almost, he'd almost killed it by his own negligence. Uh, right. Smart girl. But he, <laughs> he sold that boat and the money he got for it, he used to purchase the rifle. And he would then go down to some waste ground uh, at a, uh, near Dunalley and in the, like in the state forest, the public land, and he would shoot um, just paper targets for a couple of rounds, like bam, bam, bam. And then he would run and throw the rifle back in the car and drive away because he didn't want the neighbours to call the police or somebody shooting illegally. Um, the, the key thing is I just want to tap back on that mechanical knowledge. Yeah. During the day of the Port Arthur massacre, there were two tourists, uh, Gay Lind and her friend, had broken down in their tourist van, pulled over on the side of the road between Seascape and Port Arthur. Yeah. And during the, they were there, um, they couldn't get the thing started, so they're smoking a joint of marijuana. And this yellow Volvo pulls up, and a guy gets out of it with long blonde hair, looked like a surfer. These two young girls, this young guy, he's cute, and he talks to them, oh, you've got mechanical trouble. He then fixes the car by reattaching the battery lead to the battery and give, and gets the car started. And when he's talking to them, he can smell the marijuana on them. And he says, have you got something to sell me? And she says, I can sell you a little baggie for 50 bucks. And he pulls out a $50 note and gives it to her. Drives he off. No they never see him again. He Martin had no, had no money. Okay, so where did that money come from? The gunman then drives two minutes down the road to Port Arthur and pays for his entry fee with another $50 note. So the shooter's carrying at least two $50 notes on him, yeah. In which is big money back then. Like, you know, even now, 50 is our second largest denomination. And so having a, a, a bundle of cash like that... Um, 
that reminds me of it reminds me of Chapman and McVeigh having thousands of dollars on them, yet they were both mm -hmm. unemployed. It reminds me of Correct. that type of thing. And and indeed, the local kid, one of the local trans kids who shot up a school where the door was left open, he was unemployed and managed to get himself on a $7,000 rifle with a $7,000 scope or, or two $7,000 rifles or something. It's, yeah, these, um, the, these coincidences really start to add up. Um, but anyway, so that's so these... Um, th these coincidences, these witness statements, you know, there's two or three witness statements who say, yeah, I definitely saw Martin Bryant shooting these people and whether their memory's been doctored by the media or not, regardless, they believe they saw him, that's fine. But right. if you trust those witness statements, you must also trust these other ones which introduce doubt. And our justice system is predicated upon the concept of innocent until proven guilty yep. and you must be proven guilty beyond reasonable doubt. And I believe that any lawyer, given the chance to have for a retrial, could have introduced reasonable doubt to the jury. Yeah. Oscar, I take it you're a shooter. I am. Uh, we'll have to arrange to go the rifle range one day. <laughs> I'd love that. Um, just one other thing on yeah. the, for your for your shooting people. Non-gun people don't really understand how difficult it is to hit targets. Yeah. Um, and this AR-15 had a honking big 4 by 20 competition scope on the top, right? And so it's designed to magnify the image to hit targets between 100 and 200 metres downrange. Right. When the cafe was shot up, those targets were within two metres to five metres, just across the width of the room. Now, it is impossible to use a telescopic sight at those short ranges because the, the, the magnifier yep. doesn't work at short range and the physical bulk of the unit on top of the rifle blocks out the normal iron sights, which most rifles begin with. Some competition shooters who do something called three-gun, which is a competition that uses different ranges, some up very close and some very far away, they have the telescopic sight mounted on the top, and at 45 degrees, they have what we call backup irons, which stick out at the side of the rifle, and you have to tilt it sideways in order to use them, but you can then use it at short range and long range. This is a way they get around this problem of not being able to hit something at close range with a scope on top. Right. So the shooter inside the Port Arthur Cafe could not have used the scope to line up those 19 headshots that he did in 21 seconds initially. Yeah. He was doing it using just his eyes and his, his reflexes, his training. Now, there is a way to do that. It's called point shooting, and most militaries teach this to their infantry at some stage, whereby you are not using the sights. You're using your muscle memory to aim the gun and still hit what you're looking at. Now, this is a skill which degrades very rapidly. Um, there's a, a book called Inside Delta Force by Haney, who was one mm. of the very first operators in the US Delta Detachment. And he describes a situation where they had only fired a million rounds in a month. And Colonel Charlie Beckwith, the commander of the unit, tore strips off them and abused them for being lazy and slothful for only firing a million rounds a month in training. He said, you're not working hard enough. Get on it because your skills will degrade. You need right. to keep them current. So you've got 20 blokes, 20 yeah. men firing a million rounds a month just to stay current. And you're telling me that this guy with a 66 IQ who had fired a maximum of 20 rounds in his life using a telescopic sight was magically able to 
nail 20 headshots in a row without it. No, that's well, no, Oscar. I, I understand. Oscar, that just reminds me of Adam Lanza being expert marksman, supposedly mm -hmm. you know, from Sandy Hook, you know, mm -hmm. with all the headshots. Yeah. yeah. Now, I'm going to go one step further and I'm going to say that it is possible for an untrained shooter to do this under hypnosis. Yeah. Because Darren Brown is a uh, hypnotist on UK TV and he has, he did a, a, a recreation of Surahan Surahan shooting Robert F. Kennedy and to see whether it was possible to hypnotize somebody into shooting a celebrity without knowing about it. Right. And Stephen Fry was the celebrity and, and was in on the joke, but they were absolutely able to hypnotize a guy into shooting Stephen Fry with a blank pistol and having no recollection of it afterwards. Yeah. Well, so, who, who, is, who is playing uh, Caesar behind Bobby? <laughs> Sorry, I had to say it. Yeah. Good, say good work. Yeah. So, so this is MK Ultra. This is, in, this is, yep, correct. So I'm saying it is possible to do, it is possible for Martin Bright to have done what he did physically if he was hypnotized by someone else into doing it. That's certainly possible. And we know that MK Ultra or the Tavistock Institute did have an agent in Tasmania called Dr. Dax, and he did interview Martin for schizophrenia when he was a child. Yeah. So Martin had crossed paths with these, this world, this shadow world before. Um, or as your intro scripts, uh, George Bush saying, this new world order, the people yeah. running this new world order. Martin had brushed across the, the sides of this, and it's possible they thought he was an interesting person to, to contact. Uh, Martin did travel to the UK before the shooting happened and dropped off the radar for a couple of days, apparently, in the area of Hereford, Stirling Lines, where the SAS um, um, yep. operate. So there's a line of suspicion that says it's possible he was being groomed like this and was brought in as a demonstration and then had his memory wiped. Personally, I, I use Occam's razor as a reference point to say, is it the simplest explanation? The simplest explanation is, is that he was impersonated by yeah. a pro shooter, yeah. a mercenary. And he was drugged with rohypnol or ketamine about 12.30 p.m. on the Sunday afternoon, and he was inside Seascape while all of this was happening. And mm. then all Is the guilty parties came back to Seascape, left him there, and departed. And then no, the police... No realizing that he would wake up. Right? Correct. Yeah, because he was a big guy. He was he yeah. was tall and strong. And I believe that it was, it was only a few minutes. Like, the house was on fire when he woke up. And yeah. as he was crawling out, the roof fell in on him and burned his back. So it was, a, it was literally a matter of 30 seconds or more. And he would have been dead and we wouldn't have known about it. So... Yeah. That's yeah. That's that's the simplest explanation. Is that these evil people behind the scenes decided they needed something, um, and the mechanism was created to do this. It was certainly not a perfect operation. There was errors and and uh, yeah, uh, miscalculations. Yeah, never. Yeah. For instance, the other rifle. There was two rifles involved. The other rifle. See, Martin Bryant had two rifles and a shotgun. He had the AR-15, and he also had an older AR-10. Which he had, which he'd bought, and he had the semi-automatic shotgun, and he hadn't sh he hadn't fired the shotgun. He was terrified of the recoil. He just liked to own it. So he was what we would call a collector, a, a museum curator. He just wanted this because it was cool, right. and he had tried to fire the AR-10, but he was using the wrong ammunition, and it got stuck. It wouldn't oh, extract. Yeah. 
Right. And so he took it into Terry Hill's gun shop and handed it over to Terry Hill barrel first. This guy had no idea about safety whatsoever. Handed yeah. a loaded firearm barrel yeah, first. They were pointed at anybody. Right. right. Yep. An so AR-10 Terry... is one of them. Yep. That's a 308. That's a 308. That, yep. yep. Wow. It's, so, it's a dummy empty. round. Dummy round. Yep. Yep. Okay. So Terry Hill said, yeah, look, mate, I can fix it, but it's going to take a while because I have to get parts. Leave it with me. It's going to take a long time. Being, right. Terry Hill did the right thing, absolutely. Took it off this guy and said, oh, you're not getting it back, mate. I'll fob you off and for as long as I can. Yep. So, But the plan is, see, Petra didn't know that. And so Petra would have reported to her handlers that Martin had a two two three, a three oh eight, and a shotgun. These are exactly the type of rifle. He fitted the profile that they wanted to ban. This is perfect, Okay. Yeah. Two days before, the 308 has gone. How do we replace that? We still need a high, large caliber 308. So this SLR, this uh, FN FAL well. 308 was obtained from somewhere and we still don't know where it came from. It is right. a complete mystery. Martin had never seen it before, uh, but it was a, a, a scoped 308 and uh, it was used to, for, uh, not inside the cafe, but it was used outside the cafe because the uh, AR-15 got quite hot after burning through two magazines and right. so he transferred to the, the the other rifle so this remains a mystery and there's no no explanation for where that came from so i believe that his handlers obtained that on the black market from somewhere in tasmania quite possibly from a reserve army barracks yeah. literally just down the road from his house which was in the course of phasing out those rifles in favor of the Austria. the f88 so there were yeah. So there were crates of these surplus rifles lying around, and if you exchange a case of scotch for one rifle, nobody's going to know the difference. So that's the simplest explanation. They needed the three because that was what the media was already primed to right. demonise, and so they. Uh, but there's no records of Martin ever purchasing that rifle. Um, just just a side note there: Julian Knight was also army reservist at the time. That's the Hoddle Street Massacre. Yep. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. And that's when they were using the um, SLR still, the FNs, and then they went to the yeah, F-88, the Stiers, yep. yeah. So there was plenty of them still in stock of the SLRs. Yep. Yes. Yep. And, and given what we all know about um, how easily that stuff moves out into the black market, yeah, that's yep. entirely plausible. Yeah. Now, Oscar, in your opinion, and forgive me for asking you to speculate, how many gunmen do you think were involved in this operation? It only needs to be one. Okay. And that's what my book is predicated on. I know there were reports of a second shooter yeah. very early on when everything was confused uh, and they then disappeared. Whether they were valid or not, I don't know. Uh, it's possible there were two because, as we all know, two is one. One is none. Yeah. However, um, as far as I'm concerned and the, the book is concerned, we only need one. They only needed one person who actually knew what they were doing uh, yeah. in order to quickly cause as much damage as possible and then exfil back to Seascape, hold the police off what, until the helicopter if, could arrive. I didn't know if there was other witness statements saying that they saw actual two other guys or not because a lot of the times these shootings hmm. – they will see two or three guys, and then it'll go down to one in the end. Mm. Yep. 
Yep. So I, it, I am aware that there are people who have seen news reports, like people who remember watching the news early yeah. on of being two shooters and then it becoming one. So whether that happened, it could have, it certainly could be, but that's extra people you need to organise, et, et, et cetera. So yeah. Yeah. from a, a necessity point of view, we only need there to be one to, in, right. to impersonate the, the patsy we've set up. Okay. But it's entirely possible that there was. Statistically, that's it, it's a reasonable yeah. assumption, and we'll probably never know. I mean, that's yeah. uh, I've read a, a couple of books about the Enigma program in the UK during World War II, where they were breaking the German codes, yeah. and they had hundreds of women working for the Ministry of Defence in these code-breaking operations, and yeah. none of them said anything for decades after the war. Like it was the 1970s before anybody even wrote a book about it because they'd all taken signed the Official Secrets Act and they took their oath seriously. They were, yep. they were de de dedicated to taking those secrets to the grave so that yep. nobody would know about that program. The, nothing's changed. There's still people in the Defence Department and in shadow uh, Australian security organisations who will, you know, people who've done dirty deeds and they'll take that to their grave. And a lot of it's compartmentalized too, especially in the United yeah. States. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Uh, one thing a lot of people don't know about um, when Australia was doing peacekeeping in East Timor, so our neighbour to the north, yeah, uh, is controlled by Indonesia, which is a, a hostile neighbour, and Indonesia believed that the whole country of East Timor would voluntarily join their government, and East Timorese people voted unanimously in a referendum not to join Indonesia. They wanted independence. So the Indonesians did exactly what the communists had done in Africa. They sent criminal gangs across the border to burn and terrorise the people who'd voted for freedom. Yeah. Australia, against the world um, opinion, sent peacekeepers in there because the rest of the world, the UN, was happy for these people to be punished into submission. And Australia yeah. at the time said, no, this is not right. We need to stop it. So Australian peacekeepers were sent in to restore order and preserve things until this new country could become its own state. Yeah. While they were there, they had a direct database link to joint headquarters in Canberra. So the military people with the computers and the radios, they had a direct satellite link back to Canberra headquarters with live updates of information, of satellite imaging, um, surveillance to help them create a picture for troops on the ground. Somebody unplugged it for 24 hours. Wow. Inside yeah. Canberra, somebody inside our government, somebody inside our Defence Department unplugged that link for 24 hours, still hasn't been caught. Wow. So that somebody wanted that peacekeeping mission to fail and went to yeah. a lot of effort to try and um, sabotage that. So there's, these people are around. We, we can think that our governments are good and working on our behalf, but I'm sorry, there are infiltrators everywhere who are willing to, to take great personal risks and take those secrets to the grave. Well, that's, this that's reality. This uh, I'll uh, I'll ask Harps right after this, uh, just in closing, because I know that we're we're strapped for time right now. But I had heard that there was. Um, there was an announcement in 1984 that um, there needed to be some kind of a shooting, and it was mentioned that Port Arthur would be mm -hmm. a prime target. Um, have you looked into that aspect? Yep. The, the man's name was Barry Unsworth, and he was a, yep. a politician, and he eventually became the Premier of New South Wales. 
so our state, like our state governor, he became our state governor, and he tried to implement um, advanced gun control in the state, and immediately lost the next election. It was you know he 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 campaigned for an election of massive gun control, and everybody just said we're not having this. That's nonsense. We can't afford it. It's not effective, and right. so he lost the next election. Um, the and that's always been Australia's case. The states of Australia are in a way, like American states, I have a lot of power over certain things. And firearms laws is one thing that the federal government does not have the power to legislate. Right. So each state is up for their own. And so therefore, the state is responsible for the cost. And with so much other burdens on the public purse, Rebecca Peters and the UN toadies running around saying, we need you to register and confiscate all of this. The premiers were saying, who's going to pay for it? Because a database and all of this registration, all this paperwork is expensive to run and maintain. And newsflash, criminals do not register their guns. So it's a counterproductive exercise. Right. And if public safety is your goal, okay, if civilian armament is your if a civilian disarmament and eventual tyranny is your goal, then it's a logical step. But we're not going to talk about that. We're going to change the narrative and we're going to paint it in the picture of public safety. After the Port Arthur massacre happened, Queensland, the state of Queensland, was one of the biggest opponents of registration because at at the time we did not have a lot of mining royalties. We're not a rich, not not a wealthy state. And the government could not afford to have registration of firearms because it's a very big it's like texas you know it's a massive country and a lot of it is unpopulated because it's either desert or uninhabitable and so the the cost of trying to track down all of these firearms and register them and have police going to investigate gun safes to make sure they're safe storage the 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 government shook their head and said we're not doing this so the premier the the state governor and the chief the police commissioner traveled to canberra to see the prime minister john howard to say they had a big folder of data from the police saying our own police evidence proves that this is not going to work. It's not going to get the outcome you want. It's not going to stop bad guys getting guns. It's not going to stop bad people hurting people. It's going to cost us far more than we can afford. Right. And the the Prime Minister of Australia asked the police commissioner to wait outside in the hallway while he spoke to the state governor, the Premier. And he laid on the desk a photo of this man leaving a notorious gay nightclub in his capital city. And at the time, Australia was very conservative. And if such a photo was put onto the front page of the newspaper, his career, his family, everything would have been absolutely ruined. And the easiest solution would have been for him to end his own life. It would have been absolute career and personal disaster. He, he, he would not have, he would have had to emigrate. For, a, for a, the person at the top of the political tree to come out as uh, associating with these people, inconceivable. And so the commissioner, waiting out in the hallway, the door opens and his boss comes out looking as if he's seen a ghost. And he says, what happened? And the, pr- the premier just shook his head and said, it's over, we lost, we have to do what they say. That is the lengths to which the people pulling the strings were prepared to go, blackmailing the head of state of a of a state of Australia in order to get their agenda. So this is, you know, you and I are well aware that this happens all the time. And in other countries, in other continents, if the head honcho doesn't do what the people want, his plane just has a plane crash and the next guy takes over and does what 
they want. This is just par for the course. So these are the issues we're dealing with at a top level. Yeah. The, the problem I have here, Oscar, is under our constitution, there is no head of power for them to make any firearms mm -hmm. laws. And once again, we come back to the Bill of Rights 1688, you go to subsection mm -hmm. 8 or section 8, subsection 7, and it says Protestants have the right to bear firearms for self-defence <laughs> according yeah. to law, but it's a British law, so Australia can't make a Correct. law based on a British yeah. law. Yeah, Harps, I agree in theory 100%. And the issue is that if we, it, it's the same as uh, as um, Rhodesia, or you remember the Hutt River province out in Western Australia? Uh, for Chris, this is a guy who was a farmer yeah. out in the yeah. middle of nowhere, and he decided to set up his own country. So you imagine yeah. a Texas farmer decides yeah. to set up a country called New Rhodesia, and he had passports, he had postage stamps, he charged an entry fee to get a visa to come and view his cattle it was a uh, he, he was just a, an opportunist taking yeah. advantage of a quirk in the legislation uh, he seceded from the mainland yeah. um wow. very quickly the gov all the state governments changed their legislation to make sure you couldn't do that they stopped up sounds like a movie life. right there <laughs> yeah. it is <laughs> yeah How, however it's the same problem or the same lack of foresight that Rhodesia had, that any of these other, the, the IRA and anybody who's fighting for their freedom, whether, whether you agree with their cause or not, you know, yep. IRA, whatever, they didn't get thermonuclear weapons before they did it. Because when Israel was formed a state, the first thing they did was they purchased thermonuclear weapons. And that means they've got the ultimate bargaining chip with any of their neighbours who hate them. Okay. Yep. If Rhodesia had got thermonuclear weapons, they could have said to Mozambique, you pull your people back and you police your border or we will unleash it. If yep. the Northern Ireland had got the same thing, who knows what the world would be like, right? So this is the, and if Prince Leonard in the Hutt River province, <laughs> if he'd been able to buy a suitcase nuke, he can dictate terms to anyone. Okay. And this is the thing. This is what you and I, yeah, I, I'm not on the same page as you with the Constitution, etc. But until the Constitution, until the historical Constitution has obtained thermonuclear weapons in order yep. to force a dialogue and force concessions out of the people who run the show, meh, dude, we're living in Sicily in the 1980s. The mafia runs the place. You know, here in America, yeah, there's no, there's no Darpa, lot you can do Darpa about. Darpa has weapons that we have no idea about. Yeah. Correct. So yeah, they, there's, they have their there's, six. There's, F-18s, I've only got this. Yeah. yeah. So there's there's a, a reality whereby we were born in a prison, all of us. We can still have a fair bit of fun. Yeah. We can we can look at these things, we can talk about them, and we can have fun with our friends, we can drink and eat and travel a bit. But at the same time, like Ted Kaczynski says, we're never going to be able to change the big picture. It's a big club, we're not in it. But in it. <laughs> yeah. Like Viktor Frankl said in Auschwitz you can still have meaning in your life even when you're in the prison camp. And that's yeah. the approach I take. Yes, I recognise there's all of this stuff that I can't do anything about, but day to day I can plant my garden, I can prepare for the future. I understand there's a lot of long-term systemic problems coming and there's probably yeah. going to be a war and an economic collapse and a global pandemic in the near future. You know? What can I do right now that's going to help protect me? You know, Those people got on board the Titanic and sailed yeah. away and some of them got on the lifeboats, some of them didn't, some of them just locked themselves in their cabin and said, well, boys, this is it, we're going down. Other people tried to throw together floating materials that would float them away. 
That's and what band, yeah. and, and the band played on. Yeah. Mm. All we can do is choose what we're going to do with what we've got. And so that's what I'm uh, – yes, I've, I've, I've written this book to try and help other people understand what probably happened. And if it can – uh, in, if in the future Martin Bryant can get a retrial, that would be awesome. But I don't think he's going to. I, I believe he will die in prison, and yeah. that is a tragedy. Lee Harvey Oswald was shot shot dead. That's you know, this is um, who's the dude McVeigh. He's going to die in prison. Yeah. All of those. Well, he, they supposedly put him to death, but some people said he was. He could have still uh, been. Breathing. Oh, they. Oh, they. Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't realize he'd been executed. Well, oh, yeah. Lethal yeah. injection, I believe. Yep. Three so. months before 9-11, June 11th, 2001, yeah. Uh, yeah. Sandra Levy and Gary Condon, that whole thing has something mm -hmm. to do with uh, his execution uh, too, well. but that's for a different show yep. altogether. Yeah. yeah um, so. Hearts, do you have any uh, any final thoughts before I, no. I ask Oscar what he's working on now? As mm -hmm. I just, I'd like to speak to Oscar again. Me too, very much. <laughs> yes. You've told me, so, taught me so much in this conversation and the yeah. way you Brilliant. Love what you do, Oscar. And your well, approach to life right now, too. I'm in the same boat as you, so to speak, you know. Yeah, that's I've, I've read a lot, and there's a lot of people who've had a lot worse lives than I have. And so all, all we can do is, you know, the best we can do with what we've got. So, yeah, I'm happy to come back on in a, a couple of weeks. That'd be good. Yeah. Um, well, what do you have uh, right now uh, that you, you're possibly work, working mm, on? I've, because I'm a glutton for punishment, I've got... <laughs> three books which are the continuation of a series from my first book so the, my, the first book i wrote was called the kingdom of saudi australia yeah and it's predicated upon the idea that islamic extremists secede inside our capitals inside our sydney our major city wow. and so there's a civil war like mogadishu inside our polite society so uh, i can poke fun at a lot of media politicians it's just a vehicle for um, yeah. for, for, for poking fun at our current situation. And I've got a couple of other books that are um, in, in the works with that. I've always wanted to write a novel that involved power armour, like mechanical suits. And so one of them is, is Australian Marines fighting in mechanical suits with, you know, Big Dog, the robotic dogs, things like that. Oh, wow. uh, just a bit of fantasy fiction. Uh, the other book I'm writing is called The Carrier Wave, and it's a post-apocalyptic um, survivor story about a kid who is a ham radio operator in a town so this so the 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 pan the global pandemic and the vaccine has wiped out 90 percent of the world's population the survivors living in a country town are they've got a lot of tinned food but there's no board being manufactured they've got lots of toothpaste in the warehouse but there's no board being manufactured and the bureaucrats in the capital city to the south are trying to extend their control over the region so they've got these issues. So uh, it's basically like the second empty chair is explaining how Port Arthur probably happened in a situation. This yeah. is explaining how ham radio can work and trying to get people to understand that just buying a radio and sticking it in a box is yeah. not how you approach this. You need to get into it, get into the community right now and yeah. build your contacts, understand how an antenna works. Because if you can't tune an antenna, you can be missing very helpful information and just be talking into the atmosphere so that is uh, that's the current in the process. play in the play right? and the play yeah yeah the the retrial of martin Bra i've kind of done um yeah the the, the second book the revised yeah. version the uh, burning water i think is pretty much the the, the big picture yeah. uh, i don't think i can write anything new on that we can talk about it with, for the audience but um, right. yeah. those two books they work together there are there is a bit of overlap because i've used the same um, the same guts of it, 
but there's a lot more. It's more than twice as big, and there's a lot more information in there about how the the lead up to the um, the massacre and then the, the aftermath. So that's yeah. Apart from that, I'm busy. I'm I'm working. I joined our volunteer. Um, yeah, there you go. Like a state emergency book, service. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, it's I'm on sorry. Amazon. It's on Lulu. So you can. Yeah, and you were talking about the emergency service. Yeah, so we have a, a state emergency service. It's like a volunteer EMS okay. system that's that's run by our government for local disaster emergency response. And, and right. I joined that. We have flood boats and chainsaws and emergency lighting, CPR, all of that. So if well, good on uh, you. That's great. any of your audience is looking at trying to help long term, uh, you know, there's not going to be a single event where the power goes off and the UN invades and it's right. red dawn. That's not going to happen. What we're right. facing is a decade of economic collapse, faster in some areas than others, natural disasters, lack of money to repair the infrastructure. And yeah. so if you can get into your community, you're automatically better prepared to to be resilient and so that's what i'm trying to do and it, i'm not sure if your area has something like that that your you know state governments may not have that well kind of we have national guard but they like to send them to places like no, iraq no, now so I no, i'm not talking about national guard this is um yeah. this is local state or county based so if yeah. your county has a volunteer fire brigade a volunteer fire auxiliary something like that that's the sort of thing i'm uh, yeah. And if you don't have it, get in touch with the mayor and say, hey, we need a volunteer auxiliary exactly. to help out the people. So, exactly. you know, yeah. if, 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 if an extra 10% of houses in your county are trained in CPR, yeah. you're already ahead. If 20% yep. of your houses have three days food supply, you're already ahead when the next natural disaster comes through. So that okay. kind of thing. And in, in closing, um, have you ever attempted to get in contact with Martin Bryant? Uh, yes. With him? Okay. And, and I'm assuming that they won't. Yeah, it's a around. really neat setup. So he has to put your name on a list in order for your communication to get through to him. Okay. And his mum's on the list, but uh, she's not taking, you know, she's over, she's very old and she's been abused so badly by everybody on the spectrum yeah. Uh, yeah. i send him a christmas card to his to, to his the, to the mental health ward in the in the prison i yeah. have no idea if it arrives on it probably doesn't they probably just throw it in the bin right. but um yeah it's it's a he's really neat setup yeah. they've got he's in prison he's in isolation um when we come back next time i'll talk yeah. through how that isolation thing worked and how uh, he was yeah tr essentially tricked into staying right. in prison because it it that fundamentally underpins why he pled guilty and people think oh he pled guilty therefore he didn't ha ha ha, ha. dude no there yeah. you know, people plead guilty to plea bargains all the time and that's yeah. right yeah so we'll go through usually, that next time usually public defenders here in the united states they uh they pr they try to persuade their uh their client for yeah. like they take about five yeah. minutes to persuade them to just plead to something yeah. even if they are innocent so yep yeah. Well, they do that in Australia all the time. They get them. Yeah. They say, look, if you plead guilty to the drugs charges, we'll drop the firearms charges. So then when the data comes out for prosecutions, they can say, look, we're really, really tough on drugs. And the gun laws work because we're not prosecuting anyone for illegal firearms. Once you realize how effectively the media and the police bureaucracy lie to you constantly, a lot yeah. of things become understandable. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, this has been great. And I really, I can't wait to uh, be able to do it again with you guys. Mm -hmm. And uh, Oscar, if you just, uh, I'm going to end this show right now. If uh, you guys could just uh, bear with me, I just want to talk to you for a second after we, we get offline here. 
Um, so everyone, that was uh, really informative to me. I learned quite a bit, and um, I thank Harps for joining me and and bringing my attention to uh, uh, Oscar's work and everything. And Oscar, thank you. We finally did it, my friend. We were able to. We've been working on doing, it, trying to get this together for a couple months now. So. Yep. Sounds good. All right. Well, uh, till uh, till we speak again, everybody. Uh, have a good night.